0: It's good to see each of you here tonight. We have for uh, the last three or four weeks since the first part of June, we have been going over really the history of the denomination that this church is part of, that you're a part of, and we're leading up to something, and that is to really talk about where we are now as a denomination, which we're coming up on that uh, after, not this coming Sunday night, because we're going to have our our fellowship next Sunday afternoon we won't have evening services but on the two Sunday nights beyond that we're going to talk about fairly recent events that have happened during many of your lifetimes and um, try to assess a little bit of the significance of that and where we are today as, as a denomination of Southern Baptists. Um, just uh, by way of um, reminder of what what we've kind of looked at so far we saw that Southern Baptist originated in the first Great Awakening Although Baptists have existed in some form or another, depending on which historian you read, for many centuries, uh, going back to at least the early part of the 17th century, uh, Southern Baptists, however, find their roots in the First Great Awakening, when many of the older denominations experienced a fracture, as some people understood what it meant to be born again, which we talked about this morning. And they were of a totally different stripe than the other people in their denomination. So you had Old Light Presbyterians and you had new light Presbyterians, and you had Old Light Congregationalists and New Light Congregationalists. And it was in that mix that you had some individuals, one in particular named Schubel Stearns in Connecticut, who came out of congregationalism, which practiced infant baptism. And in the course of his study, as a new Christian, a born-again Christian, he became convinced that infant baptism was inappropriate, was an error that the only appropriate person to baptize is someone who knows what they're doing and what they're committing themselves to. And so, he began practicing a believer's baptism, discovered that Baptists had been doing that already, and considered himself a Baptist. But he wasn't part of the regular Baptists, the Baptists that were already in existence. They called them separate Baptists, separate Baptists. And so, You immediately had a a very different kind of Baptist, came out of nowhere, it seems, but uh, Shubal Stearns, after being absolutely convinced that God was leading him to do so, went down to the south, settled in Sandy Creek, North Carolina. That church, and within a couple years, had over 600 people attending, which was unheard of in the wilderness areas and the frontier areas of the colonial period. And within a generation, they had started hundreds of churches, and the first Baptist churches in places like South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and what would become Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, and places like that, and just exploded. They were known for their fiery preaching and communication of the gospel. They, they went everywhere. Um, you did not have to be highly educated to be a Baptist minister, but you did have to be filled with the Spirit. And, um, and they were on the move. And we have not dwelt enough on that movement, but suffice it to say, Southern Baptists, as we know ourselves today, would not exist had it not been for that separate Baptist group that came to the South. We saw how um, Southern Baptists were born. In the division between North and South, prior to the Civil War, you had numerous denominations that split into a Northern branch and a Southern branch over the issue of slavery. Presbyterian split, Methodists split, and Baptists split, and in 1845, Southern Baptists were birthed over an argument who could be appointed as a slave uh... could a slave owner be appointed as a missionary and that was the debate and it's uh, a dark part of our past not one that i'm proud of but it did it did serve as a foundation for the beginning of southern baptists southern baptists have since uh... repented and apologized for slavery for racism in the history of southern baptists um, and um, and so we consider that part of our past today we are, if we are not the most racially diverse, we are almost the most racially diverse denomination in the United States. And, and so we're, our past is certainly behind us. However, um, we saw how as Southern Baptists began to grow, there were some opponents to Southern Baptists. There were divisions occurring all the time. Uh, two major movements in the early part of the 1800s there were groups of Christians who said, you know what we need to do is just do what the Bible says. We need to go back to the New Testament church. And And uh, they had nicknames, primitivism. Uh, you'll hear reference sometimes to primitive Baptists. You'll have um, restorationism. And and the idea was that we were going to restore the church to what God originally intended it to be. And all these extra things, these societies and these mission boards and these institutions and these colleges, well, that's not in the Bible. And so... We just need to be about the local church, and out of that movement, you had people pulling up out of Baptist churches and starting new churches. In the early part of the 1800s, you see the Churches of Christ and or the Disciples of Christ, uh, two different groups ultimately that formed out of that movement. In the latter part of the 1800s, you have the Landmark Movement, and as we saw that last time we met, the Landmarkists or the Landmark Baptists were those that uh, we're very concerned with the origins of your church. Can you trace your church back ultimately to Jesus and the original disciples? They're concerned with how you conduct communion. Uh, the very strictest forms of landmarkism, only members of that local church can participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, that would be an extreme form. They also would practice uh, closed communion where only members of their denomination could participate. Um, Open communion is where any Christian can participate. Now, open communion has never been understood to include non-Christians, but they, would, they were opposed to open uh, communion allowing Christians who aren't members of your church to participate in the Lord's Supper. They also were opposed to organized mission efforts. The only one who has the authority to send a missionary or to supervise or have input into the work of that missionary is the local church, not a board or some mission-sending agency. In Arkansas we have been historically a hotbed of landmark thought and practice and there are two major groups that still exist today within Arkansas Baptist life and have affected areas coast to coast and that is the American Baptist Association based out of Texarkana and the Baptist Missionary Association of America or the BMA uh, that is also based here in Arkansas. and that pretty well, we saw the formation of the Foreign Mission Board, the Home Mission Board to do work here in the United States. We saw the, the initial efforts to try to start a publication society, a Sunday school board that would provide literature and resources to churches. And so we're, we're about 1900. We, we have brought ourselves up to that date. So today, or this evening, I want to talk about um, really a period of time from 1900 to about 1960. And as I've said it before, we are doing a 40,000-foot flyover of Baptist history when we talk about these things. There's a lot of things we're not talking about. Uh, We haven't talked a lot about Northern Baptists. I'll say a little bit more about that tonight. We haven't talked about ethnic Baptists. Uh, There were groups of Baptists with, uh, like Swedish Baptists and others who settled in different parts of the country, and, and they were Baptists in the old country, and they were Baptists when they came here. And, um, and different groups of them evolved into other Baptist denominations. We haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about African-American Baptists and Southern Baptists in our history have had a rich impact on African-American growth and the different denominations that have grown out of um, the gospel spreading among African-Americans. We haven't talked about that. So a lot of history we haven't discussed, but we're gonna do a flyover tonight of about 60 years from 1900 to 1960. In 1898, there was a committee formed to really study Baptist life, Southern Baptist life, and where we were and what we were doing or not doing. Ultimately, in 1900, it led to the formation of a committee on cooperation. As Baptists, we were fiercely independent. We still are. Every Southern Baptist church is individually independent and self-governing. No one tells this church from Little Rock or Nashville or Atlanta or anywhere else what to do or what decisions we ought to make. Um, However, in order to get work done, in order to work together to send missionaries, work together to support seminaries, and work together to publish materials and so forth, we've got to have some basis of cooperation. So a committee was formed. Ultimately, the oversight of... All the things we were doing as Southern Baptists was given over to a group called the Executive Committee that was formed in 1917. That committee still exists. Um, My wife served on that committee uh, at one time for several years. The Executive Committee meets several times a year in Nashville, Tennessee, and they allocate, uh, determine the budget for the Southern Baptist Convention, and when the Southern Baptist Convention is not meeting in June, and the Southern Baptist Convention meets for two days in June. And for those two days, everybody that's a messenger at that meeting is in charge. But outside of those two days, the executive committee is in charge for the, the rest of the year. And um, and oversees the operation of the various organizations and entities. That group formed in 1917. Representation. Membership in, um, in the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, based on whether your church gave to Southern Baptist causes or not. Uh, often a nickname for that was that was called Southwide Causes. Uh, did you support the Home Mission Board? Did you support a college? Did you support some aspect of, of Baptist life? And depending on how much you supported, and um, you got to send messengers to the annual meeting of Southern Baptists. This church is allowed so many messengers that we can send to the Southern Baptist Convention. The genius of what we do as Baptists is that a church sends messengers to their local association meeting. We're part of the Tri-County Baptist Association, and when they meet, we send messengers to that meeting. Uh, We are also part of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, a state convention of Baptist churches, about 1,500 churches. And when they meet in the fall, we send messengers to that meeting. And it's our choice to do that. We can participate in the association, we can participate in the state, and we can participate in the national convention. At all three levels, the church is the center of the activity. Um, we, We send our messengers to each of those three meetings, and we determine our level of involvement in all three of those areas. They don't tell us what to do. We truly get to tell them what to do. And them is really us. All right. Um, In 1918, the convention changed the uh, term that was used from delegates or brethren to messengers because women were now being allowed to vote again in Baptist life. Um, Lay people were involved. Ministers and and lay people were involved equally. Uh, They were all serving as messengers. Uh, My observation has been is that lay participation in those meetings has increasingly gone down over the years. Uh, there was a time where we actually had a, a civilian SBC president. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. My mind's going blank. One of y'all may remember. Um, he was a layman from, I want to say, Yazoo City, Mississippi, from the Delta. Anyway, uh, we actually have had leadership that was elected that were not ordained ministers, but that's been changing. The thing that's most significant about the early part of the last century is that we finally got our act together in how we were going to support things financially. And so I need to tell you a little bit about that. Most congregations didn't have an offering as part of their worship service. Can you imagine that? What the church treasurer would do is he would he or she would come by and visit your house once a year. They'd come by and visit your house, and, and you would pledge how much you were going to support the church. Any of y'all ever part of a church that did pledges, annual pledges? Uh, I have. There are churches that still do it. And you would pledge how much you were going to give in the coming year. And um, you would might get a letter reminding you how much you pledged at the beginning of the year. But, but we had an approach to it called pledging. Um, while that was going on in the local church, each entity, the Home Mission Board, the Foreign Mission Board, the schools that you were a part of in your area, they had agents who went out and raised money for their organization. So if I was a representative of the whole mission board and I was an agent, I would come to your church, I would speak, and I would try to take an offering, and I would carry that offering back to the whole mission board. Uh, There were problems with that system, and there were problems with that approach. Um, If I'm an agent and I want to raise money, am I going to go to the larger churches first or the smaller churches first? Larger churches first. Agents were not stupid. And, um, and so the larger churches got hounded all the time. All the time they had people coming from the different entities, agencies, and schools asking for money, asking for support. And so that's one of the reasons it was broken. They might come once a year to a smaller membership church, but if it was raining and the creek was up, they might pass your church by and not come by again for another year. And so your church may or may not have had an opportunity to participate in supporting different institutions. The WMU was actually, the Women's Missionary Union, was actually one of those institutions that pioneered the concept of regular offerings for missions. In the midst of all of this, an effort was made as the 75th anniversary of Southern Baptist life approached. Uh, They, leadership got together and decided, what we're going to do is just have one big push. We're going to try to raise $75 million dollars And we're going to allocate it to the different national groups that we support. And this is going to be a way to get all the churches involved and get everybody involved. It's called the 75 million campaign. And it was to celebrate the 75th year or 75th birthday of Southern Baptists. They raised over $92 million in cash and pledges. Now, you know there's a difference between a pledge and cash. You understand that, right? A pledge is not worth the paper it's written on. Cash is worth the paper it's printed on. And um, agencies expecting all of this money to come in, they went out and borrowed money based on what they expected to get, and they spent it, and they went about doing their ministry. The result was is that the $75 million campaign only took, eight, took in $58 million. And so suddenly some of these entities were in debt, and debt was a big problem during the early part of the 1900s. The results of the 75 million campaign, though, is that giving overall greatly increased. Churches got used to giving more money. Many congregations experienced major spiritual renewal because they were working together in this way. There was a new spirit of unity. Many congregations, for the very first time, adopted a budget system. In the early period, they didn't have a budget, couldn't spell budget. Uh, Something needs to be done, they took an offering. Um, Something's broken needs to be fixed, they took an offering. And the idea of a budget where you're planning what you're going to do as money comes in was a brand new idea. Um, some were uncomfortable with the promotional aspects of the campaign, but the end result of the whole process is that in 1925, the Cooperative Program was born. Cooperative Program is the 1925 name for a strategy for giving where churches pool their money together and decide as a group of churches how that pool of money is going to be spent through percentage allocations to the various causes that we believe in that we want to support we give cooperatively and then into one bucket and then all that money is divvied out to the groups that we support and by pooling our money together a small church gets to participate in everything the same way that a larger church gets to participate in everything now you may, you may think one dollar in that bucket gets divided amongst all the groups. And so if you're a smaller membership church and you give to the cooperative program, you become part of everything Baptists are doing everywhere, every day around the world. It really is the truth. Um, I go to some churches, not Southern Baptists, and they don't have a cooperative program, and they'll have a map on the wall. And they'll have pictures of the missionaries that they support. And they'll say, we support this missionary, this missionary, this missionary. Now, what they don't tell you is that missionary has to come home periodically and raise money. And, and the, that church may only be given a couple hundred dollars a year. But they'll say, we support that missionary. And, and so, but that missionary has to come back on and raise their support. And, and, of course, the time they spend fundraising takes away from the time they could spend doing ministry on the field. And so the cooperative program was designed to help keep people in ministry and take fundraising away from all these different entities and have one fundraising effort, the cooperative program, as opposed to 30 or 40 fundraising efforts, which wastes a lot of time and money. So that was launched. And I brought with me, I keep on, I have on my shelf in my office this a little shadow box and inside it there's a ribbon. And on that ribbon, you can see it after, after service, it says 70th Session of the Southern Baptist Convention. May 13th to 18, 1925, Memphis, Tennessee. If you were a messenger, you wore a little pin and a ribbon, and that allowed you entry into the meetings, allowed you the opportunity to vote, and this was a messenger ribbon that someone would have worn in 1925. And, um, And I saved it because it was done in Memphis, Tennessee, 1925, and that's the year the cooperative program was born. In Memphis, Tennessee. And by the way, I don't know if we're going to meet in Memphis in, 19, in 2025, but that'll be the 100th anniversary of the cooperative program. it be interesting to see if it even still exists at that point. We're going to talk about that on another night. Okay, so the cooperative program, the goal has been ultimately a 50-50 division between ministries in a local state and national ministries. And let me talk about that in depth. How the CP works today is very much what it was in 1925. Um, How the CP works today. First of all, there are two primary partners in cooperative missions. They are the state convention that you're a part of and the National Southern Baptist Convention. Those are the two partners. So this church is part of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention. That's our name, ABSC. We are part of that. That's one of the partners. Now, what you need to keep in mind, particularly if you ever hear anybody criticize state conventions and how much money stays in Arkansas to do ministry, is you need to bear in mind that, that yes, we keep a lot of money in Arkansas to do ministry here that doesn't go to to the national causes. The ministry that stays in Arkansas supports institutions like Washita Baptist University, Williams Baptist College, or now Williams Baptist University, I think it's called, uh, supports the Arkansas Baptist Children's Home. Uh, we take care of orphans. It uh, supports the Arkansas Baptist Assembly in Salome Springs. It's, it's, our, it's our camp. It supports the executive board ministries of Arkansas, which are the consultants that spread out over the state every week and help churches that are working through problems and help them troubleshoot difficulties that they're facing. But the thing you need to bear in mind about money that stays in Arkansas is that all those activities encourage churches and pastors. And and it is the state convention that raises or does the fundraising for the cooperative program that supports everything that happens outside Arkansas. In other words, if there was no state convention, who's going to raise the cooperative program? Who's going to communicate that? Who's going to talk about that? Who's going to do it? And, And if you take money away from the Arkansas Baptist Children's Home, does that mean more money is going to go to the International Mission Board? If you take money away from Washita Baptist University, does that mean more money is going to go outside Arkansas to support the causes? I would argue, from my experience, no. Because people loyal to those institutions will simply pull their money out and put it back into their institution. That's what they, they would do. But states raise the cooperative program for all of the Southern Baptist Convention. Each partner the state convention, whether it's Texas or Missouri or or, um, California or wherever that state convention is, each partner determines a formula for allocating those receipts. So this church gives a dollar to the cooperative program. Arkansas has already decided how much of that dollar will stay in Arkansas and how much will leave Arkansas. The other partner, the Southern Baptist Convention, they have also allocated the money. So when that money comes from Arkansas, to the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, there's already an agreed-upon percentage of how that dollar or what's left of that dollar is going to be divided up and sent to the mission boards and to the seminaries and to those institutions. The Arkansas Baptist State Convention adjusts their budget formula every five years. I was part of that process repeatedly when I was at the state convention. The Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee does it every two years, and they, they read, uh, reset the pie, if you will, how the pie is divided up every two years. So how does it work? Individuals give the churches. You give your offering like you did tonight or you give on Sunday morning, and it goes into our budget. As a church, we have decided, I think our number is 7%. The 7% of what we receive will go from this church to the cooperative program, 7%. And, um, and so seven, 7 cents on the dollar that you give goes into this thing called the cooperative program. Uh, and then churches give a percentage of undesignated receipts through the state convention. That's our 7% goes to Little Rock. And then the state convention allocates and sends out the receipts. A certain percentage stays in Arkansas, another percentage leaves the state. For example, uh, just to just want you to see how this is changing in Arkansas, Arkansas has been gradually increasing the percentage of money given to the state convention that leaves Arkansas and goes out and does ministry outside the state. In 2017, it was 46%. By 2022, it'll be 48%. That's a lot of money when you consider it uh, against a $22 million budget. Those percentage points matter. And so Arkansas has set its sales to increase the percentage leaving Arkansas and decreasing the percentage staying in Arkansas. So we're, we're eventually, we'll get to 50-50 at least. The executive committee in Nashville allocates the receipts from the state convention on a national level. Right now, over half of everything that goes to Nashville from Little Rock, over half of that goes to the International Mission Board. Everything else we do at Southern Baptist is less than half. Over half goes to the International Mission Board. Uh, Roughly a quarter goes to the North American Mission Board for domestic work here in the United States. Another percentage goes to each of the six seminaries that we support that are scattered across the United States. And then we have the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and some smaller expenses um, beyond that. Uh, The result is is of the money that we give in Arkansas every year, roughly about $22 million. It's divided up. Go ahead and pull up that next one. That's how much every year goes from Arkansas to those various places. So about $9.5 million of what we give. Goes to the International North American Mission Board and truly the SBC. Um, almost half. Arkansas Baptist Team Ministries, those are the consultants, that's 6.3 million. Education is Washita and Williams Baptist College, four point, almost 4.3 million. Arkansas Baptist Children's Home, about six hundred almost 600,000. Uh, Arkansas Baptist Foundation, Arkansas Baptist News, General Ministries, Camp Siloam, Shared Ministries. And so that's how the money breaks down. Now, I want you to see, I have a, a little two-minute video that goes into a little bit more detail about how the money is allocated in Arkansas. And so I want you to watch this for just a couple of
1: minutes. How do you reach three million people with the gospel? That's the question Arkansas Baptist pastors came to together to answer in 1847. They saw a mission field. There were
0: whole counties without a Baptist church or preacher, and state citizens who had never heard a Baptist sermon. Their goals were to help churches support their pastors, place missionaries and ministers across the state, plant new churches, and promote education.
1: The Arkansas Baptist State Convention was formed. Arkansas Baptist churches realized that, to spread the gospel to all four corners of the state, they would need to extend their reach. So they established seven bodies, each with a distinct mission to work together. Universities that would train the next generations of pastors and educate students with a biblical worldview so that Arkansas Baptist churches might see more young people living to further the gospel. Ministries that would impact children, distribute kingdom resources, the story of Arkansas Baptists who are spreading the gospel around our state and world, and missionaries who would strengthen and revitalize churches, evangelize the underserved, the unengaged, the unreached, and impacting younger generations with the gospel. Each body, though independent and with its own board of directors, cooperates together as the Arkansas Baptist State Convention united in spreading of the gospel and the building up of the Church of Jesus Christ.
0: And that gives you just a snapshot of how the cooperative program works just in Arkansas. And so the dollars that stay in Arkansas support those particular ministries. You say, well, how do Arkansas Baptists, how does our church decide how much of that money goes to those institutions. Well, we don't do it by ourselves. We do it during our annual meeting when Arkansas Baptists meet together in the fall. Usually um, at the end of October, we always do it before hunting season because we can't get Baptists together once hunting season opens. And so we always have our fall meeting uh, late October uh, before hunting season opens up. And so, um, and there a budget is voted on every year. Uh, That budget is an 18 month process before it gets to that vote. It's been carefully worked out, and planned, and determined with the other entity heads, uh, presidents of the different institutions, and, uh, and then the convention meets and votes on those allocations. There's some challenges to the cooperative program that we're facing right now, and this is really something I want to talk about in a couple of weeks. But I want to go ahead and touch on three things tonight, some things that are challenging the cooperative program. First, there's an overall declining participation in the cooperative program. Um, it's just a fact. Fewer churches are participating, uh, giving less and less, and uh, larger churches as a percentage of their overall budget are giving abysmal amounts, just a very small percentage of their overall budgets. And so the Arkansas Baptist State Convention budget is $22 million. That $22 million is everything that we give and everything that we support in Arkansas and outside Arkansas as 1,500 churches. But I know single individual churches with budgets nearly that big. Do you understand what I'm saying now? When, when there's one church that has a, a $15 million budget or a $20 million budget in Arkansas, um, all of us working together, we can raise $22 million. But, but when you have a larger church that gives a half of 1% um, of their budget, it's just, it's, there's declining participation. And, um, and I think it lessens our impact. I know it does. We're not able to do as much when there's declining participation. Second phenomenon, direct funding based on individual relationships. Um, I've talked to larger church pastors and, um, and they'll say, well I sat down, Don, and I took a pencil to it and I saw how much of our dollar that we give outside of our church, how much of it actually got to that missionary. And I didn't like the number. And so we decided to cut our cooperative program giving and give more money directly to the International Mission Board or directly to the agency or institution that we wanted to support. Uh, Sometimes it's just a matter of knowing somebody. Well, we know the person who works at that organization and we want to support that. The problem is is that we don't have a history of agents coming holding their hands out to our doors like they did 100 years ago. In other words, our churches don't know what it's like to have 25 or 30 different people come by your building and every week being asking you to take a special offering for their cause. And that's what we could head back to if the cooperative program were to dissolve completely. So direct funding based on individual relationships. The last thing is is that there is a prioritization of international mission causes over local, state, and national ministries. And this has been going on for at least uh, 15 years or so. Um, I'll talk more about this at length when we get to where we are today. But this is a trend, and so what does that mean? It means that we do missions overseas, but missions in the United States don't count. Uh, we will send teams abroad, but we will not send teams to Seattle or Wisconsin or, or someplace where they need help as well. What's the consequence of that over time? Well as the United States, as Southern Baptists, who are fairly affluent, fairly prosperous in the U.S., we have the capacity to raise money to send missionaries around the world. We're the largest mission-sending country on the planet. The second largest mission-sending country on the planet is Korea, South Korea. Um, But but if we don't take care of the home fields, if we don't address problems like only 17% of the American population was in a church of any kind this morning, if we don't begin to address that, we're not going to have money to send support missionaries. And I'll tell more of that story and what's happened with the International Mission Board in recent years. We have actually cut our missionary force because of this particular trend, the prioritization of international missions over state and local missions. And so it is important that we share the gospel with the people who have not heard the gospel. There, it is important that we reach the unreached people groups around the world. But if we don't take care of what's happening across the street, we're going to lose our capacity to help people around the world. And um, and so anyway, that's my my uh, hobby horse for the evening. I got a lot of I want to cover here pretty quickly. Uh, basically, in in the, what happened at the end of the 1920s that affected the entire United States. The Great Depression in 1928 at the Home Mission Board. Clinton Carnes, who was treasurer of the Home Mission Board, embezzled nearly a million dollars. You know, there there are crooks everywhere. And that embezzlement plus the debt load from the failed 75 million campaign uh, put the Home Mission Board deeply in debt. It took years to get out of debt. But nearly every Baptist organization and institution during that same time period was in debt and was in trouble, including Arkansas Baptists. And it took years. And I'm, I'm happy to say that most of our institutions, I'm not aware of any in Arkansas that defaulted on their debts. It, it took 10 to 15 years, but they, they paid them back. And the Home mission board, though, was one of, the, one of the worst. The SBC almost went bankrupt. Now, At the same time all this was happening, Northern Baptists, who, who, who were also vibrant and were preaching the gospel at that time, Uh, they had they had some theological issues but they also had a lot of conservative and sound bible teaching people as well and they were sending missionaries to the south and they were sending them out west but but the northern baptists and now they're called the american baptists the northern baptists um, had a movement and it got a nickname fundamentalism any of you ever heard that word Um, there was a fundamentalist movement among Northern Baptists, because in the various schools and institutions of Northern Baptists, theological liberalism had set up shop, and they were teaching things that the average run-of-the-mill Baptist in the pew didn't believe, that that Genesis, that creation didn't happen that way, that the Bible can't be taken literally, that the Bible's filled, filled with errors, and there's mistakes in it, and Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, and and uh, he didn't really rise from the dead and he wasn't born of a virgin mary and and suddenly you had this outcry from certain preachers Um, some of these guys though were so vocal they attacked everybody and everybody became an enemy one of those was a guy named j frank norris j frank norris was a baptist pastor Uh, he uh, was actually from the south but he was involved in in Baptist life in the north and in the south. At one time, he pastored the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth and a church in Detroit, Michigan and rode a train every week back and forth between the two churches. But he was a fighting fundamentalist. He was, he was mad. He accused everybody of theological liberalism. You could have been, I'm so conservative, my shoes creak. He would have attacked me. He, he, he attacked everybody. He once shot and killed a man in his study at the church. Um, he was attacking the mayor of Fort Worth because he was Catholic and he was just sure that the Pope was calling the shots in Fort Worth through this Catholic mayor and he was just, it was awful. And this friend of the mayor went to the office, I guess, to confront J. Frank Norris and J. Frank Norris shot him and um, killed him and went to trial and he was let off the hook, said it was self-defense. So uh, he was a character. But out of that we got the Baptist faith and message. And um, we got the Baptist faith and message because our institutions did not have a single set of doctrinal guidelines that they could point to as an institution and say, that's what we believe. If you support us, this is what we preach. If you support us, this is what we teach. And so the the consequence of that, and I'm kind of flying over this, was that in 1925, we also adopted a single faith statement called the Baptist faith and message. And, um, that has been revised twice since 1925. It was revised in 1963 and again in the year 2000, but it's essentially the same document. And it was a revision of an older 1800s document, the New Hampshire Confession, uh, Baptist Confession of Faith. And so for the first time in our history, we had a single statement of what we believe as Baptists. And I'm not gonna go into the details on that. Let me talk about our institutions though, from 1900 to 1960. The Foreign Mission Board, and I'm going to use the names, not what we call them today, but what they were called from 1900 to 1960. The Foreign Mission Board uh, received most of the SBC mission money. Uh, at their heyday, they had over 5,000 missionaries in 153 countries. Uh, the whole mission board was growing during this time, received about a quarter of our mission dollars, uh, did not become debt-free until 1943, but in the 1950s, started aggressively moving out west and to the northwest. The Sunday School Board, we saw four misfires when we studied that last week, but it finally got traction. It began producing Sunday School materials and resources for churches. Uh, It is one of the only entities that we have that does not receive a single cooperative program dollar. It is self-supporting through its own sales and actually takes a portion of its profits and gives it back to the Southern Baptist Convention through the cooperative program, um, but the Sunday School Board in the 1920s, a salesman turned Baptist preacher named Arthur Flake began to promote Sunday School work in an organized and a systematic way. How many of you have ever heard of Flake's formula? Oh, a couple people, all right. Flake's formula. The Sunday School Board was organizing the Sunday School for Evangelism and there's the formula. Discover prospects. What's a prospect? If you're a salesman, what's a prospect? Well, that's somebody you can sell shoes to. A prospect in Sunday school is somebody that that needs Jesus or that may become a member of your class. Discover prospects. Organize to reach the people. Enlist and train workers. Provide space to meet. Visit and enlist the prospects. Flake's formula. And uh, by the way, your pastor believes that still works. Uh, There's no rocket science to reaching people. The Lord. It just takes a little intentionality, and a lot of prayer. Um, the Sunday School Board had a great influence in church architecture. They had an architecture department. I think they still do. That for years counseled churches on how to build their buildings. I want you to see a couple of graphs or charts, and then I'm probably going to uh, stop tonight because we're we're just about out of time. Let me just stop with these two charts, and I'll figure out how to work the rest of that in later. Um, This is Southern Baptist Convention baptisms from 1900 to 2002. If that red line is a trend line, what is happening to baptisms? They're flatlining. They're plateauing. Okay? So that is the general trend. And in fact, if you go from 2002 to 2018, it is not plateaued anymore. It's actually down, going down. We'll look at that later. I want you to see, though, about the middle of that chart, Uh, 1950, you'll see about four different spikes from 1950 to just past 1960. Do you see those? Uh, Southern Baptists had their heyday during the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, We had an incredible Sunday school campaign called A Million More in 54. Uh, We were serious about Sunday school work, we were serious about getting people into an environment where they could learn the Bible. And in the context of that safe environment, they could ask questions and find out about the gospel, find out about Jesus, find out about the truth. And and we were were baptizing and reaching people for Jesus at a rate that we haven't seen since. It was a remarkable period in our history. Now, nationwide, there was also what scholars are now starting to call a mid-century revival taking place, from the end of World War II, 1945, to about the end of the 1950s and it was just a global event there were a lot of people coming to christ during that period and a lot of institutions and and things were started during that time frame but uh, that was a significant period now just to the right of that you see another another couple of spikes around uh, the late 60s and 1970s in fact it's the tallest one up there do you see it Uh, what was happening then anybody know what what kind of revival period was happening then what we call that The Jesus movement, the Jesus people movement, from 1970 to 1975, we baptized over 400,000 people a year as Southern Baptists. We've never baptized that many people before or since for that sequence of years, for four or five years in a row. Over 400,000 people a year. Last year, we baptized fewer people than we did in 1946. It's less than 250,000. And we got more churches and supposedly more people than ever. But the members to baptism ratio is just atrocious. It takes a lot of Southern Baptists to baptize one person right now. But In the 1950s, we, we, were, we were in a different, different place. Um, go ahead and look at the last slide. This just accentuates it a little more. You can see 1950 to about 1962, and you see those spikes. And um, in uh, 1950... In Arkansas, we baptized more people than we ever have before or since. We baptized about 16,000 people in that year in Arkansas. We've never done it again. Uh, right now, we baptize every year about ten to 12,000 people. And so what was happening? Well, I'm not going to give all the credit to Sunday school. I'm really not, although that was significant. It was a work of God. It's something that God was doing. And so if I were to throw out Certain years, like 1740, First Great Awakening. That's when we started. 1806, revival at Williams College in northwest Massachusetts resulted in a haystack prayer meeting and the birth of American foreign missions. It really started the birth of Baptist missions. 1806. 1858, there was a great prayer revival that swept this country just before the Civil War. Southern Baptists were caught up in that in a measurable way. It was the the first time that we could see the impact of revival on us. And um, an Arkansan, Dr. Roy Fish at Southwestern Theological Seminary wrote his doctoral dissertation about how how fire fell and God just did a mighty work among Southern Baptists during that period. I could talk about 1905, 1906, where there was a global event. A lot of people talk about the revival in Wales, where 100,000 people were saved in 10 months. But that was a global event. Everywhere... There were Christians on the planet. There was a spike in baptisms. In Arkansas, baptisms went up 25 to 30%. And Arkansas Baptists were tremendously affected by that revival period. And so what was happening in the 1950s was that. It was a movement and a work of God. And we as Southern Baptists have always benefited when God begins to work like that. We've always been ready. We've always set our sails. God, if you do it again, sign us up. We want to be a part of what you're doing in our generation. And I'd like to be a part of that too, wouldn't you? I'd like to see God work like that again. And, um, but as we move through this, as we come bring it up to date, I think you're going to see that we've got some real challenges as Southern Baptists that we need to consider, that we need to address, maybe even to repent.